0: in real life with other people and, you know, being able to bounce ideas off each other, you don't have what they call a digital static. Well, I can tell you that sitting people in rows of desks behind dual screens is not going to get what you're looking for. The concept of The Next Workplace is really about how can we utilise our work environments to elevate the employee experience.
1: Welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. My name is Paul Fairweather.
2: And my name is Chris Meredith.
1: And today our special guest is Melissa Marsden, who is a interior designer and a workplace
2: design strategist. Yeah, I, I, I think she's almost a thought leader in what work will be like it's interesting she's just published a book called the next workspace and i learned so much i learned about neighborhooding i learned about the importance of applying the principles of great work when you're at home as well as well as you're in the workspace um, and uh, so much more about play and food for example in the workplace so yeah very interesting
1: yeah no i found it a great conversation chris and obviously over my career i've designed numerous workspaces and certainly, when I was doing it, you know, 10 years ago, there was no workplace strategist uh, to soften up the clients beforehand. But it certainly is a, a great thing, and I do understand, you know, as she says, her the dilemma of coming in and being just told, "Here's the space, you know, this is the number of people to make it work," and it's obviously a lot, lot deeper now. So yeah, it was a really interesting conversation, and we hope her book goes well. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes. So uh, let's get her on.
2: Yeah, that's going to work. Hi, Melissa. A huge welcome to the Colton Creative Podcast. Lovely to have you on the show.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys.
1: Yeah, great to have you on the show, Mel. Can we just start off by giving us a potted history about where you got to where you are?
0: Sure. Um, So I actually started out as an interior designer, and during my career, I ended up starting to design workplaces which I found absolutely fascinating because I have a bit of an entrepreneurial bent behind me and so then got focused on trying to figure out what makes businesses tick. And a big frustration for me was working with organisations where they would come to me and tell me, this is the lease that we've signed, here's the space that we've, you know, agreed to and we want to fit this many people into this space and sort of jam all the little boxes into the big box – and so I started really um, unpacking that with organisations, trying to understand what their values were, what their strategic objectives were, and that kind of led me on this journey to where I am now, which is to becoming a workplace strategist. And so I help organisations really understand what kind of workplace they need to support the people that they employ um, and what's going to make them the most productive by creating an environment that really supports them in getting their job done in the day-to-day. So that's kind of how I ended up here.
2: So, Mel, tell me, uh, how far along the journey of a, a workplace strategist, I mean, is that a hard sell? Because certainly my impression is so many offices are about exactly as you described. We've got certain amount of space that so will line up rows of desks with chairs behind them, and that's the end of the design program, surely. Yeah. So how hard is it to sell the idea of workplace strategy?
0: Um, it used to be really damn hard, and I would spend a lot of time sort of banging my head against brick walls. But in some ways, the the pandemic has been the silver lining because now everyone is talking about the impact of environment, the role of the workplace, how do we get people back, hybrid work. And now it's really, it's a much easier sell uh, to get people to have this conversation. But what I'm finding is that, Um, organisations still aren't really clear on what that means. And they don't know that what I do is actually even an option for them. They don't know that this is a thing. And so they tend to start with the tenant advocate or the real estate agent. And then they kind of find me a little bit further down the process. And then we've kind of got to backtrack a little bit and and line all the ducks up again. So it's an interesting process where I sort of sit into the, the mix.
1: Um, I'm assuming that's knocking your head against the feature brick wall um, <laughs> and, uh, yes. with the ducks on the row, ducks in the wall. Um, but listen, yes. so uh, obviously to help get your word out there the word about what you do is you've written a book called The Next Workspace. Is that The work, Next Workplace? The
0: Next Workplace, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, uh, I'm assuming this has amazing gems in it about what you do and how to go about it. So tell us about the book.
0: Okay, so the book um, talks you through the five um, pillars that underpin the dynamics in every workplace. Um, So this is a model that I've kind of developed, and the first one is talking about what reimagining the future. And the reality that many organisations have is that when we start working with them around their workplace, they're very much talking about the current state. And previously, organisations weren't taking a lot of perspective around what the future state might look like. How is technology going to impact and shift um, the way their organization operates? What's AI going to do? How is all of these other things going to impact the number of people I need, the types of people I need, the types of roles that they need to do? So that's a, a big part of what we look at. The next thing that we look at is brand and culture. And brand to me is not so much your logo and you know the PMS colors that people then tend to slap on the wall and go, look, there's my feature wall and I've, I've dealt with my brand. <laughs> It's more about the experience that we want people to have when they do business with us. What do we want people to feel when they come to work for us? And then how do we then bring that to life through the physical environment, which then in turn leads to the creation of culture. Um, We then look at values and behaviours because the values are then what underpin that and then the behaviours are how we see that come to life. So if we want people to be living a certain set of values in our organisation, what are the behaviours that we would be expecting to see them exhibiting in order to know that they're living in alignment with that? And the great thing about our physical environments is that they can influence our behaviour. So when we know what we want people doing and how we want them working and interacting and collaborating, we can subtly... um, guide that behavior through the way that we design the space
2: so Mel, i know you said you said there are five things we've only got two three but i can't resist jumping in on on behaviors because our our, you know passion is creativity can you bring it to life if if we were briefing you and said we want to start a, a really creative organization what would that mean for you as a designer how would you encourage creative behaviors through a physical workspace
0: well, I can tell you that sitting people in rows of desks behind dual screens is not going to get what you're looking for. And unfortunately, that's the majority of workplaces that I tend to start with. I um, me looking at the behaviours that we want people to to be doing. So if we want to see innovation and we want to see creativity, well, underneath that, that's typically we want to see people conversing, we want to see people creating relationships, we want to see conversations happening, ideas being sparked. And so to make that happen, there is a couple of ways that that could happen. You can simply put in collaboration spaces, but then, you know, collaboration spaces take on many, many forms. Are they digital collaboration spaces? Mm -hmm. Are they, you know... um, tech-free spaces are they whiteboards are they in a corridor Um, you know one of the, the anecdotes that I tend to refer to is that Steve Jobs when he designed Pixar designed it in the form of a cross because everyone has to go to the bathroom and then that way all the different disciplines would have to run into each other and spark these conversations so it's kind of like how can we engineer these serendipitous moments for people to connect and to build those relationships because relationships don't get built in a boardroom when we're all sitting around and told, okay, now I want you guys to collaborate, it's not going to happen there. I need to have, you know, built a relationship with Sally from accounts in the tea room over a cup of coffee, having a chat about, you know, whatever we watched on TV over the weekend or, you know, what we did. And finding those commonalities and those shared experiences that build, those rapport, build that rapport so we can enhance those relationships which then enable us to, to build on that creativity and be collaborative in our work environments.
2: Mel, how did we get? It? It's interesting. You, you said, "How can we engineer serendipitous moments?" And I think instinctively, we and anyone listening, we go, "Of course, that's true. We need to kind of have bumped into Sally from accounts and and had that network going on." And yet, somehow, business taught itself to put desks in rows and have departments separated from other departments. So yep. we, we've known for a long time about serendipitous moments and bumping into people and so on, and we've designed office spaces to do the opposite. How did we get there? How did we start at such a wrong space?
0: If you take a little look back in history, it all kind of started to shift when, um, with Henry Ford is kind of where I start to ah. look at it from, and it's when he took the um, the working week and he split it down into five days and he had three shifts running around the clock. So basically he turned his workforce into a 24-hour shift workforce that worked eight hours a day, five days a week. And then as we've shifted into more of a knowledge economy, we've actually just picked up that same working model and took it from the factory floor and put it into the front half house offices. And then as the offices got bigger and bigger and the factories got smaller and smaller, we've just continued this operating model and we've never really re-evaluated it. We've never re-looked at it. And this is where the pandemic has created that spark. And now there's all these conversations around the four-day work week. which, you know, it's kind of we need these big catalyst moments to kind of mm. shake us up and go, okay, why are we doing what we've always been doing? And it's an opportunity then for us to kind of go back and re-look at it and see if there is another way because we've kind of got stuck in the way we've always done things.
1: I'm really interested. Chris and I did a workshop in a last year down in Melbourne for a large law firm. And they have a hot-desking situation, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's sort of partly a space thing and it's sort of new office after COVID. But what was really interesting is that one of the, the heads of the department, she was saying she has to book a, a spot every day. And the biggest problem that she has is she doesn't necessarily end up with her team. And so, you know, this whole idea of, you know, mixing people up and stuff, but she finds it very frustrating because she's not necessarily right near her team. Like I think this is really interesting because it's seeing such an uh, advanced thinking to do this. Yet it's missing about that that you know that T-shaped plan of of jobs mm. where the people can't actually communicate together. They might as well be at home on the screen. Do you have a sort of a thought on that?
0: Yeah, and I think it comes down to the strategy that you develop at the outset for the project. And you know, a lot of the work that we're doing when we are looking at these agile environments where people don't own their own desk and they're coming in and they're connecting in different ways, we're looking at neighborhooding. So we're still sort of um, identifying groupings of desks in particular zones within the floor plan that enable people to have a home base. So they know generally where their team might be located the other way that that can be done is if organisations want to go for a more broad kind of approach to this is the introduction of technology. And technology is getting so much more advanced in terms of these you know, workplace management software to the point where it uses the algorithms and AI to start to engineer connections. So you put in you know, your team and you understand who you need to work with and then it can start to go, okay, well, you know, Sally's going to be in on this day and you need to talk to her and she's part of your team and then it kind of then helps you engineer those connections so that you're all coming in on similar days and that you're sitting in similar spaces so that's where technology is starting to fill the gap that obviously comes at a cost and that's where that piece tends to fall off the radar at the moment but if we look at it as a a holistic you know whole of project cost if we're reducing our footprint because we're getting more efficient with our utilization of space and how we're optimizing that the technology kind of um offsets that So,
2: Mel, we've been talking about offices, work, workspace, and so on. And of course, more and more of us are working in a variety of spaces, including perhaps our own homes, maybe the spare bedroom or the kitchen, wherever it is. Quite often, meeting in cafes and so on. I'd love to hear. Do you have many projects about how you help people set up and work effectively at home? If so, what advice have you got for people when they are? I think at the moment a lot of people are just crouching over their laptop in the corner of the kitchen or a spare bedroom or something and and i think we need to go a long way beyond that but if you are working at home how do you from a creative point of view how do you maintain a creative vibe but but also how do you maintain and get an effective workspace at home mm.
0: um we actually take the same principles that we uh, communicate to employees when we're working with organizations and show them how that they can then take those same principles and apply them at home. So, you know, when you go into a workplace and particularly our our more modern agile workplaces, you move around. You don't sit at the desk all day. You go to the quiet room, you go to the cafe, you go to the collaboration area. You use the different spaces to create... Different mindset shifts and therefore you bring different energy to different activities. So, you know, if I'm going to go and do some collaboration, I'm not going to go and sit in the library because it's this quiet space, it's soft seating, it's very singular. It doesn't invoke that idea of being, you know, generating ideas and being, having robust conversations. So the same thing is true at home. And this is why, you know, during the pandemic, you know, everyone's going, you need to set up your desk and you need to do this and you need to have all the ergonomics and all the rest of it. Ergonomics are great when you have a home base, but the other thing is we should be moving. So the best posture is your next posture. So, you know, if you want to do some creative uh, collaborative Teams call or a Zoom chat, Do it at your kitchen table because it kind of is the same sort of style as what a meeting room table might be. If you want to read that report and you want to do some reflective sort of deep research, go and sit in the lounge room and do that. So use different aspects of your home to mimic that sort of energy that you want to bring to a task or activity and utilize different spaces. And I find the shift in those spaces sparks different ideas because it's that shift in environment and that's how we can maintain that creativity at home.
2: I think that's so true isn't it different vibe in the kitchen if I were ever to launch a business with staff which I never will do I, I love working with myself if you like but it would be called the kitchen for that exact reason that's a, yeah. it's a creative people kind of moving around there's lots of stimulus anyway so yeah that makes perfect sense yeah so
1: basically I wanted to um Chris and I have come to our own conclusion, both by our own experience and also by a lot of neuroscientists that we've interviewed, and there's this whole thing about the difference between face-to-face, you know, in the same room and online, and Chris and my story is we, we were introduced uh, in about March 2020 by a, 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 a common friend, and Chris and I did not meet in person for two and a half years after that. Now, we did a lot of ideation, a lot of podcasts. We ran some programs together, but we didn't actually physically meet. And the day that we met, we did a bit of brainstorming, and it was like amped up. It was amazing, you know? So that whole thing about minds connecting and things. So I just wondered whether you had a view on on that in your experience. You know, you're talking about the technology, algorithms and stuff to get people to try to bring them together. But do you have any insights into the difference between this face-to-face and online collaboration.
0: You I have a, a definitely have a view on this and it's more an observed view um, in, in general, but the energy that you get from being in real life with other people and, you know, being able to bounce ideas off each other, you don't have what they call a digital static. So there's not that delay between, you know, what I said and what you said or, you know, if we've got a larger group of people, there's, you know, the opportunity to talk over each other and kind of get a, a conversation rolling, whereas if there's, a you know, there's five or ten of us on a Zoom call, we're all kind of sitting there waiting very politely to take our turn and, and not over speak over somebody else because you can't have multiple voices over the top of one another Um, you know, over technology at the moment, it makes it very difficult. So there's that sort of lived experience. The other thing that I know is that there's a neuroscientist out of Adelaide, her name is Dr. Fiona Kerr, and she talks about the fact that when we meet face-to-face, Um, we actually have what happens is a, is a, a retinal eye lock. So my eyes will lock onto your eyes and there's a chemical reaction that happens in our body. Now our body stores that chemical reaction and so that then if I have a conversation with you over Teams or Zoom, my body recalls that And we instantly have that rapport reconnected. But that rapport can't be created over technology in the first instance because, you know, as we're sitting here looking at each other through a camera, we're never actually having direct eye contact. So that gives us this opportunity to build that in person. And then we carry that chemical reaction so that we can draw on it when we need to reconnect over technology. That's
1: really interesting. And I have a great metaphor for that because Chris and I are all about metaphors and storytelling. My grandmother used to love the AFL and she used to try to get me to watch it with her and I could not understand it until I went to a live game. And once I went to a live game, I could then watch it on television, but I couldn't watch it because I just couldn't follow it. You know, I didn't understand it. So it's, you know, I think other sports are different, but AFL, you've got to be there live. So I, I, I do understand that. And we have to look that uh, Fiona Kerr up, Chris. She sounds like uh, yeah. really quite yeah. fascinating I was also just the interesting you're saying about you know like movement and things. Um Chris has a uh, an assistant on a lot of his masterclasses and this woman uh who's who's teaches accounting and yoga and she does uh, desk yoga and on one of the ones that she's done that I've been on she does a thing called toe yoga. Um and it's fantastic and she gets down on the floor and she, and what you basically you interlock your toes uh by using your hands and it is the most bizarre sensation and it really does get you thinking and feeling differently so um i can recommend that one
2: to- toe yoga um i, w- I want to talk about how you get people I-, I love that idea the principles of moving around even when you're at home um how I- I- my own particular workspace you can probably tell right now i'm standing up and i have a sitting workstation that happens to be in shop right now um how do you get people to do that at home? It seems like there's nobody else around saying, should we grab a cup of coffee or, or um, hey, can you just jump over here and we'll have a five-minute chat, which happens in the workspace. How do you prompt it to happen at home? It sounds great in theory, in other words, but hard to do.
0: Mm, I think there's a bit of conscious deliberation that needs to happen to to make this occur, and, you know, it's about being conscious of taking those breaks it's about scheduling in those breaks, in your diary throughout the day, remi- you know, setting up reminders. I love the Pomodoro method as well. So, you know, being really focused on the work that I need to get done for a short period of time and and then taking that a step away. But also then, you know, thinking about those um, tasks and activities that I'm doing throughout the day and then going, is my desk the best place to be doing this? Or is there somewhere else that would bring a better mindset to the work that I need to do, which would then support my performance in actually doing that piece of work as well? So I think there's a lot more level of consciousness that we need to be bringing to our work day when we're at home that we don't have to do when we're in the workplace because the physical environment sets up so much of our routine and ritual that we don't have to think. There's a lot of autopilot that happens when we're in our workplaces and those experiences are guided by the way that our workplaces are actually designed.
1: Um, Well, I'm I'm interested sort of just to follow on this, like this workplace design thing, and I've just been reading the book about uh, how uh, Bezos tells stories and use narratives, and they made a comment about their office's that they basically, for a long time, they were just basically the, the proverbial solid cool door on trestles, um, this whole thing about being agile and things like that. Now, that's, that's a, a look and feel that a lot of architects, you know, start with and, and maintain because it's sort of simple and it is very agile. But, and I'm assuming a lot of the workspaces you get involved with are, are pretty special, you know, high budget, you know, pretty groovy, all the best, you know, all the best of everything. And and I'm a designer. I love designer spaces as well. But what's possible if you've only got the sort of you know the desks from Bunnings or uh, IKEA? Um, you know, how how do you add that 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 value of the workplace design if you've only got some basic elements? You know, do do you have a, a you know a view or an insight into that?
0: And look. Some of the projects I do have big budgets, but some of them don't. And you know IKEA and Freedom Furniture tend to be a very staple source of, um, of product. So that's definitely not something that's off the table. But what I suggest with organizations is actually going back and looking at you know what is your strategic objectives? what is your business story? And how can you use your space to communicate that? So to give you an example of this, um, one of our clients is Hall Chadwick. They are an accounting company. The Brisbane branch of these guys, they started out in Longreach forty years ago. When we walked in and started working with them, they had the standard landlord issue carpet, they had doctors' chairs in the waiting room, it was a grey laminate you know reception desk that they'd picked up from you know office works, and they'd put this space together. But it didn't tell me anything about who they were or, you know, what they were about. So through the process that we go through, we uncovered this story of who they were and this really deep, rich connection that they have to Western Queensland. You know, a majority of their clients are agricultural landowners that, you know, are from Western Queensland. They're multiple generations old. So they have this really strong affinity to the land. Um, And so what we did was we then started to bring that story to life. Now, these guys created an immensely creative uh, workplace, but it didn't cost the earth either because we were very smart and very clever about the type of materials we chose, where we sourced our furniture from, how we put it all together. So it is possible. But what I suggest is that organizations don't take that very, you know, white desk, kind of approach that you tend to see when people think "Oh, I don't have a lot of money I don't want to be spending a huge amount you know laminate doesn't cost that much more when you change it from a timber grain from a a white board you know there are simple ways that you can bring creativity into that space and that you can tell your story of who you are where you've came from and what makes you unique and different because at the end of the day everyone's business story is different and this is that opportunity to communicate that because it's going to attract different clients to you but it's also going to attract different employees to you as well.
2: Now I wonder if I'm going to change subject a little bit there's there's a particular bugbear I have about many offices that I visit when when I'm in running workshops and so on I'm hoping you can give me the the solution to this which, which is This is, you've led into some kind of meeting room or some workshop space and you're there to set up and the room is full of chairs. (laughs) <laughs> somebody somewhere has decided that because there's a certain floor space, we must fill the space with chairs. And I place a huge value on empty space where people can walk around, where people feel free to create. But no, somebody somewhere. Oh, we've got more chairs. We'll put more chairs in. And there's never, there's, there's never enough people to fill the chairs. But I, I, basically, I take my hat off to any chair salesperson. They must be brilliant. <laughs> you can, you need ten chairs. I'm going to give you twenty. Anyway, how do we get rid of all of those? Excess chairs to create a bit of space somewhere where people can actually express themselves.
0: I think it comes down to the purpose of the room, to be honest. And I think, you know, when I look at this, it's about multi purpose spaces. So, training rooms I love because you can typically reconfigure them, the furniture in there is stackable or, you know, nesting, and you can move the tables away. So, having flexibility in the furniture is a big a big thing for me so even in a boardroom if you can flip and fold the tables and get them out of the way and you know typically boardroom chairs are a lot more impressive and so they're quite fixed and you know quite rigid whereas training room chairs they can you know they they can stack as I said or you know the, the seats flip up and they can nest and it just makes things a little bit easier and you know the ability to be more agile in that space and be more creative with how you actually use that space.
2: I was hoping for something like electroshocks for the designers or something much more provocative than that. That's a very <laughs> sensible suggestion, but I think we sorry. need to see people in the stocks in the town square for crimes of too many Chris, chairs. Chris, I've I, got to jump in
1: here because I think it's some sort of designer thing. For a while I lived in a quite a small one-bedroom flat, and at one stage I realised I had 23 chairs. <laughs> 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 and, and, and it's just like, chairs. and there are all sorts of different chairs. And so I went, oh my god, you know, even in my studio, you know, I just got so many chairs. It's just like ridiculous. And,
0: yeah. and they're probably random. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well. I do. Have, I do
1: have one chair that I <laughs> bought at an op shop for twenty bucks, and I saw it at the V&A in London on an exhibition about mid-century modern. I went, oh my god, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, it was the 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 um, office works version back in uh, 1950, but I was very very happy with that chair. So. Um, so no, look, I, yes, Chris, I feel I feel your pain, but I think it's
2: a, I think it's a, I think it's a designer thing. That we, uh... <laughs> well, my theory, for what it's worth, is when you see the plan in two D on paper or something, and there's a gap, somebody it, feels a, a need to fill it up with something, and there's a template for a chair, and you just pop that in, and so they, when they're specifying the furniture, they just count it. Oh, it's twenty eight chairs, fine, I'll put the order in. It. Um, it's yeah, just well, can't have there's... a space, we can't have gap.
0: Well, there's typically a room size for a table size which houses a certain amount of chairs, so that's where that problem's coming from.
2: <laughs> yeah, comes to ratios. Yes. But I, I guess, I guess, I mean, the serious point behind that is I, I think empty space is, is actually very important for creativity, that, that people can walk around it. They, there's a sense if there's emptiness that I need to fill it with my ideas, my suggestions and so on. Mm. And so I think a, a, an empty space is very Helpful and and powerful in the workspace. Um, I guess my question is: Do do you agree with that? Is it important to have some some nothingness?
0: Um, to a point, I think if you look at a floor plan and you see nothingness, people tend to think that it's not being planned well, or it's not being optimized, it's not being utilized. You're wasting space. But I think if there's purposeful intent around how those spaces could be used. So an example of that is I like to use, you know, this modern invention of whiteboard paint on walls and turning whole walls into great big whiteboards. You don't want any furniture around those spaces because you want people to mass there and to be able to express themselves out onto this wall all in unison, like everyone contributing at the same time. So, being very purposeful around how you create those spaces. The other ones that I like are using really large oversized pieces of furniture to create zones of space. So around them and within them, it's quite vacant, but there's sort of this defined border of where the conversation can be contained. Um, And so this is kind of this landmark. So there's different ways that you can approach it, but still get that feeling of openness and um, space.
1: The title of your book is The Next Workspace. (laughs) So like... Just in closing, what what are the key elements of the next workspace? Like, what, what is it? You know, what, what is what is the future? What is the future of work?
0: <laughs> Big question. Um, the concept of the next workplace is really about how can we utilize our work environments to elevate the employee experience. How can we? connect all of these pieces together and you know as we started out this conversation many people have seen their workplaces as a place to accommodate people you know this is where we need to go to monday to friday from nine to five and this is where i need to put my bottom on a seat and and do my job that's not what our workplaces are for anymore and so it's really getting to the crux of why do i actually need a workplace what is the role that it's filling in the performance of my business, for my employees to be able to perform, to do their jobs. What is this all about? And so the next workplace is about guiding you through those pillars. And helping you unpack and understand where those opportunities are for you to leverage, you know, what you want from a people and culture perspective and marry that up with the facility, which is your workplace, to create an optimal outcome that inspires the human potential of your people and delivers on the business value and the performance that you're looking for. And and just
1: one extension to that. Do you think workplaces are going to get smaller? Because, you know, do you think people are, are going to continue to work from home?
0: I think people are going to continue to work from home and organisations are definitely rethinking the intent of their workplaces and why they need them. But I think that the way that our spaces is going to be provided to our organisations is just going to shift. So what we've seen at the moment is an inverse ratio. So we used to see rows and rows and rows of workstations and little bits of meeting rooms and little bits of collaboration areas we're actually starting to see a flip of that. So we're seeing lots more collaboration spaces, we're seeing lots more quiet rooms because everyone's on a Zoom call or a Teams chat, so they've got to have these private individual spaces. But we're seeing a reduction in the number of workstations because... We tend to do that type of work now at home. So we do our deep, focused, um, you know, hard work at home. And when we're coming into the office, that's where we're there to meet people, to collaborate, to communicate and to connect. So the role that the workplace is playing has shifted. And depending on what that ratio looks like in your organisation, yes, you might see a reduction in floor space. For some other organisations, you might be occupying the same floor space, just in a different way.
2: (laughs) Well, I was going to say that... that wraps it up brilliantly kind of, and that answers the practicalities of you know, can we save money on rent um, and the answer is maybe, it depends on your business but much more, I, I love what you said, uh, ha, that the workspaces about inspiring human potential to elevate the employee experience. So many of my clients are desperately trying to get their employees back into the office. And I think what you're saying is if you inspire people in through that office, they're more likely to come back there and probably stay with you as an employee. So I think that that's, sets it up beautifully. I think everyone should buy the book and find out how to do that.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll have a uh, link in the show notes, uh, mail to your, to your book and to your website, So any, any other stuff that we've mentioned. Uh, and look, so thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been great to reconnect and to hear more about your book and about your work.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a really enjoyable afternoon.
1: Well, Chris, that was a great, very entertaining uh, discussion about workspace and the future workspace. <laughs>
2: The idea that a workspace isn't just a place to come to work. It's a place that should elevate the employee experience. It suddenly makes you think very differently about what would happen in a workspace and how it works. So I I thought that was really inspirational and and really powerful for us as creatives to work out how a workspace would influence that.
1: Um, So, yeah, look, if you enjoyed the, the show, please give us a rating and a review. A rating of five would be excellent. And tell your friends. So, uh, and uh, please tune in again next week when we have another interesting guest.
2: See you next week on the Common Creative Podcast.